Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Scott Fitzgerald said that the rich are different. But what about the poor? Beyond the common denominator of poverty, what are the other aspects of the poor that we just don't understand? Does poverty itself create a different life, a different view of the world, that accounts in some ways for the fundamental failure of so many well-meaning programs? Yet in spite of that, we continue to look for the magic bullet that will suddenly eradicate poverty and transform our urban streets and the developing world. Doing this has been the work, examining this has been the work of this year's Nobel Prize winners for economics, Esther Duflo and Ahit Banerjee. Esther Duflo is a leading development economist known for her longstanding work in applying impact evaluation and control trials to identify which developmental interventions actually work. She's the Jamal Professor of Poverty Alleviation and Development Economics at MIT and the co-founder of the Poverty Action Lab. She's a MacArthur Fellow and has been recognized by The Economist, Fortune, and Foreign Policy Magazine as one of the most influential leaders in the field of understanding poverty. Ahit Banerjee is a Ford Foundation International Professor of Economics at MIT, and his research has led him to identify whole new aspects of the behavior of poor people, their needs, and the way that aid or financial investment can affect their lives. Together, they are the recipient of this year's Nobel Prize for Economics, and it is my pleasure to present the conversation that I had with Esther Duflo and Abhit Banerjee some years ago, talking about their work and the way they've rethought how we deal with global poverty. Abhit, Esther, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Esther, I want to start with you. One of the things that, that you talk about is the importance of experimentation. And, uh, you know, as FDR said during the Depression, the importance of bold, persistent experimentation. Talk about that and why there has been resistance to that idea. Right. We This quote from FDR was a quote in, said in a moment of crisis, the, the country demands persistent experimentation. And the idea is that poverty is this kind of form of crisis, that there are people who live a kind of permanent crisis um, every every day. So experimentation is really in two dimensions. One is try new things, things out of the box, try things that have not been done. And the other is do it in a way that you can actually learn from those lessons. The second part of the quote that you started with is, if something doesn't work, admit it frankly and try something else. And this is this part that is often missing a little bit in the development world, in the fight against poverty, and that we in the Jamil Poverty Action Lab are trying to bring back. One of the things that, that seems to be consistent throughout much of the work that has been done is the sense that the perfect is often the enemy of the good, that we're looking for the perfect solution and we should be looking more towards experimentation and seeing what, even what small elements of different programs work in different parts of the world. Yes, the, the, the problem is to try to, to do everything at once. The problem is the idea that you could... Uh, uh, try to solve the entire problem in one stroke of your pen. And often, this is not very productive. This amounts to um, caricaturing the poor, or caricaturing the problems, not trying to understand them. And often, the solution is, is more into trying to find like little things that may make a huge difference. Banerjee, talk a little bit about what we don't understand sometimes in looking at the permanent crisis of poverty 
in so many parts of the world? Well, there's lots of things we don't understand. Uh, we don't understand why, you know, why the schools that, you know, these these children go to don't deliver to the to them and, and we can try we have hypotheses we we can we make up stories sometimes uh, you know as and i made up stories in our book and those are often um, ones we believe in but i think we overall you know why don't why don't they want health insurance why don't why why isn't it why is it the case that they don't want preventive care but uh, often are happy to go to the doctor when they get sick so they don't but they won't take precautions uh, why why is it that it's so difficult for them to grow their businesses all of these things are kind of we it's not that we don't entirely understand them we are, we are, we we you know we are in the business of trying to understand them so we 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 try but i think these are all kind of half understood uh, issues and what are we doing now, Esther, in trying to better understand these things and deal with the inertia that it, that often exists with respect to programs that are there and try to, to shift them to things that are working? Well, the approach we are proposing and the approach that uh, many of our colleagues uh, uh, practice every day in their work is really an approach where you you have a permanent back and forth between proposing an explanation for a problem. For example, um, if maybe if children don't learn in school, it's because the uh, the curriculum is much, much, much too demanding for the majority of the children. That's a possible explanation. So, and then you have this back and forth between a possible explanation and what is really happening on the ground. And in particular, the the effect of um, uh, interventions that could remedy the problem if you've understood it properly. So, for example, if we have understood properly that the real problem is that students are taught this too demanding curriculum, then we should see that programs of remedial education or programs that use computers to make sure that kids uh, can learn at the right level should have huge effects. And then you run these experiments to to try these programs out in India, in Kenya, in Ghana. And when you see the effects, that tells you whether you you had the diagnostic right. And in this way, little by little, you get a better understanding of what the real problems of the poor are. And one of the things that becomes clear in this, Banerjee, is that oftentimes it's not just lack of money, but other things that are lacking, lack of education or lack of health, that we need to be looking at things other than just the money component of this. That's absolutely right. I mean, it's it's clear that, and even within education, if you like, it's not often the problem of how much money you spend on it, but how you spend the money. It's it's identifying what works. We spend tons of money. It just we we often spend it on the wrong things or under the wrong assumptions or the may or the you know just the whole conception of the program is somehow missing the point of what the problem you're trying to solve. So we we kind of have a tradition of shooting blind, often with big guns. One of the things this leads to is a lot of debate, Esther, about aid itself. And, and, and as you talk about, there are aid optimists and aid pessimists. Talk a little about that. The, um, it may be natural when we are sitting here in our country, that we think the most important uh, question, the most uh, interesting questions about poverty is what is our role in it? 
and so it may be natural that sitting in in California or in Boston or in New York, we think of the most important problem as, as aid. But in fact, it is not such an important problem because most of the money that is being spent on helping poor people in the world is actually being spent by the poor countries themselves with their own budget, with their own tax revenues. So that's a little bit of a misleading debate whether aid works or aid doesn't work. And I think it shows some amount of... Uh, um, seeing the the world through a very small lenses that we focus on that debate. And oftentimes, Esther, that debate doesn't really take into account the results, the experimentation, the small and the large successes that you talk about. Yeah, that debate tends to be a little bit um, uh, polarized. So you have the aid optimist in one side and the aid pessimist in one side. And then once you have adopted a side, the, the danger is that this colors your entire vision of everything. So you adopt this general view that money is good or money is bad, and then every single problem you're going to see through the same lens. One of the things that you talk about in this context, Esther, is, is this debate. It's sort of a chicken or the egg question between politics and policy and the degree to which one influences the other. We tend to think, or conventional wisdom tends to tell us, that politics dictates policy, but it's not always that way, as you point out. Right. That's uh, what we tend to think is 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 probably the dominant view. Is that uh, the type of approach that we talk about uh, in our work and in in our book is that it is important to get right the detail of policies. But a lot of people, uh, well-intentioned people, tell us, well, that's fine, but. All of this is really the details because what matters is how is the political process. And if the country governments have no intention to improve the lives of their citizens, then figuring out the right policies makes no, no difference. And what we try to, uh, to argue is that although politics certainly matters, in a lot of cases, it leaves a lot of slack. It leaves a lot of slack to do good things or to do bad things. And moreover, uh, when you do good things, when you have good uh, policies, that has a, a tendency to feed of itself to eventually improve the political process as well. And one example of that, I think, is, is Brazil, where there was kind of a virtuous circle between good policies and good politics that have placed Brazil today in a much better situation than it has been in the past. What is the impact, Banerjee, what have we seen the impact is of, of democracy, particularly in, in countries where there is also going along with those attempts at democracy a certain level of both corruption and tribalism? Well, I, I think that we, I think it's, again, democracy is one of these things that, um, you know, people are sort of see as a, you know, a kind of a marker for, you know, we have democracy, therefore things will work better. It's one of these grand, grand um, institutional innovations that seem people have a lot of faith in. The spirit of our book is to say that this democracy and democracy, uh, it's always about how to make Democracy works well when certain conditions hold. Those conditions can be made to hold. For example, tribalism in democracy, a part of that problem, at least from my own work, is actually that um, people don't know 
anything about any of the candidates. And when you don't know anything about any of the candidates because they never show up, there's no media uh, that exposes their performance or you know whatever makes them look good or bad. Uh, you don't know anything about the candidates. They never show up. Uh, you you feel like well, if I don't know anything about any of these people, why not vote for the guy with the same name as me? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that sort of tribalism is tribalism by default. Uh, I think a lot of you democracy works when lots of other things work with it. When information is available, when voters are alerted to the, those possibilities, uh, and you one shouldn't put. The amount of weight we put on democracy per se is way over. Uh, I, mean, I think it's just it's just over the top. There's no reason to imagine that democracy per se will deliver so much if the you know all the accessory conditions are not there. The other part of it, Esther, is that that in many of these countries, people feel that they're choosing between the bad and the worse. That's uh, that, that that's right, and or, or they simply don't know, as as uh, as Abhijit was saying, they just they feel like you know they are not really informed of what people are going to do, so they feel the safe course of action might be f- to go with the most familiar. But what is striking, and this was in um, this was um, found in in Abhijit's work in particular, is that when you provide them information. When you say, well, candidate A actually did all these good things for you, whereas candidate B is indicted for corruption, or uh, you you do get uh, you do get different you do get effects. People who are informed that a particular candidate is uh, performing well will be more likely to vote for this person. And people who are informed that a particular candidate is corrupt will be more likely to vote uh, for another person. So this is, in a sense, very encouraging because it shows that democracy can be perfected. And out of that, Abhijit, how do new policies emerge? How do we see new policies beginning to grow out of situations where there is some political change? Well, I think that, in a sense, uh, if you... If you think about the world right now, uh, there are, there's all this excitement about uh, about uh, Egypt and Tunisia, and 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 I'm, I share the excitement. I I, I think there's, it's an interesting question of whether or not uh, the that excitement uh, with sort of you know now we have democracy uh, is uh, how to match that with a kind of a more uh, I think inquisitive and open-minded view of. Well, we have democracy, but we need to make things uh, to make things work better. Yeah, uh, it's not just a matter of saying that now we can vote. It's a matter of getting all the institutional elements figured out, and and you know how to deliver better to the poor, how to get the better economic policies. And I think I think part of part of what we are trying to achieve through our work is to to get policymakers to ask the how how do we do this best question and uh my sense is that that's that's a it's not an easy one one for politicians to see because they don't immediately see they they don't come necessarily come from a culture where they immediately have, see the kind of the pitfalls of you know taking a policy so you know even the good ones are impatient and say their reactions often look you know fine but you know i know the solution to this problem i'm going to just do it so i i, I guess it's it's always a challenge i think we're 
getting somewhere with it. I think the fact that we come with evidence that's credible and we've worked a long time on the ground and that there is a body of knowledge available for these people does have an influence. But it, 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 it is a battle because, you know, people feel like, you know, why isn't the obvious thing to do always the right thing to do? And that's a, that's a battle that we keep fighting and hopefully we'll get somewhere. I mentioned inertia before. How much of the problem is exacerbated by constituencies that benefit from the problem being ongoing, Esther? That's uh, that's an interesting question. I think the inertia is often not even necessarily coming from someone hugely benefiting from the problem, but just from someone being someone lackadaisical about the problem. Um, it is true that whenever a new program or a new policy is implemented on a very large scale, then there are people who are in charge of implementing these this policies and they form a constituency for it. Uh, but I think one can slightly overemphasize how much of an interest they have in these particular policies. Some people are very convinced, like some people, for example, who promote microcredit are very convinced about microcredit. But a lot of people, I think, would be reasonably open-minded about doing something else instead. And we are not about to eradicate poverty tomorrow or in five years or in ten years. So none of these people who are working to help the poor are in any danger to be out of business. And I think their business would actually thrive better if they could show that they were effective and really making a difference. So I don't think anybody has an interest in in really keeping uh, the poor poor in 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 making the problem stay, I think the an important an important cause of the of the inertia is what we call lazy thinking. It's the lack of willingness to be confronted to the hard problem and and try things out and be wrong and try other things rather than uh, this kind of more pernicious uh, uh, desire to 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 keep poverty. Around. And to what extent then, Esther, have you seen any kind of resistance to the kind of experimentation, to the kind of analysis of metrics, to the kind of human science, as you call it, that, that you're doing here? I think there has been maybe a little bit of resistance um, at the beginning due to the fact that uh, people maybe didn't fully understand why it was necessary. The people didn't fully understand that it actually, you do not get the right answer about the effect of a program by just asking beneficiaries what they think, that one need to go further, one really need to look at the impact with uh, this experimental approach that we are proposing. So I think that may have been a problem at the beginning. Um, other than that, in some, in, in, in some quarters, there, there is so much conviction that uh, uh, we have the solution, that there is a little bit of a resistance to, to evidence. Uh, people are already very, very convinced and maybe a little worried of what might be found out if, uh, if we did an experiment and sometimes maybe unhappy with the results. And then that translates into a fight about the methods. And we've seen a little bit of that um, about about microcredit, for example. Um, but I must say that by and large, uh, the, the, the dominant 
feeling we have at the moment is that more and more people are really willing to hear and and willing to to change their practices and and try things out and seeing that there is some benefit to to learning about uh, the impact of what they do. What about the difference, Abhijit, between NGOs and government in the, in the aid they provide and, and the way they measure their success? Well, I mean, there are actually sort of, uh, I mean, I, th- I think the systematic difference seems to be um, that, the, I mean, the, the NGOs which do and don't, and to be honest, they're government. Um, some of the most... Um, innovative and aggressively innovative and you know systematic rigorous people are in government it's not that you always find them and if you look at what's happening in countries like you know for example chile there seem to be a really strong constituency within government of people who want evidence and to want to drive things based on that so it's a i i think that there are many many organizations in the world which could do with paying more attention to evidence, and uh, there are NG, but that includes NGOs and government. Government, and then there are many NGOs which that are great and are just, uh, I think, very, very rigorous and careful in the way they think. And there are some government organizations as well. I, I don't see a big difference between governments and NGOs as much as I see difference between, you know, uh, people who just don't want to engage or think, and they they exist everywhere in the world, sadly. What about the pervasive impact, Esther, of corruption? And certainly that's a reality. Yeah, corruption is definitely a reality, and and it's kind of plagues um, many efforts to to try and help the poor. Um, And we need to take it on and we the way we think about it we need to take it on as a problem to to solve and in fact there are very interesting series of um, of uh, of experiments trying to see well how can we best fight corruption i think we have to understand that corruption is probably here to stay because what the governments are trying to do is usually something which Either they are trying to redistribute a resource from some people to some to some other people, so there will be always someone in between trying to see can I get a cut of this. So it's not something that is about to disappear. This is something that we will have to fight for, with, against, uh, uh, forever. So what we need to do is to be armed and say how are we going to fight it best. And there are um, many. Uh, um, scholars who are doing very interesting studies trying to see what works and what doesn't work to fight corruption. And a simple solution is audit people more frequently. Have, you know, go and see what it is they are doing. Uh, check their accounts and do that regularly. That puts some fear into people's uh, minds and they, uh, they therefore are less corrupt. And moreover, once you reveal the results of the audits to voters, for example, as they do in, in Brazil on a regular basis, voters respond. And because politicians want to be elected, voters' responses is actually a very important driver for change. One of the points that, that you make repeatedly is the value of small ideas and, and how small ideas can make a really big difference. Abhishek, talk a little about that. Uh, I guess... Uh... We, we we sort of want to make the case that ev- every battle is won 
one small idea at the, at a time. Um, so even when you're trying to reform education, you don't reform education. You change the textbook. You change the teaching. Each of these things is a small idea, but every big idea is uh, really a set of small ideas, unless you've not thought about it. The, the problem is often big ideas are pushed as big ideas because people haven't thought deeply about, enough about them. So they think they're one big idea. We're going to do democracy. But what does democracy mean? Democracy is just an accretion of small ideas. You know, we we fix, you know, the who can run as candidate, the campaign, campaign finance laws, the, uh, the you know, how, how protected are voters when they vote? Do we have electronic ballots or not? Do we have hanging chads or not? Yeah. You know, all of these things are real issues, and every one of them has consequences. And so in, in some ways, ev everything in the end almost essentially can be thought of as an accretion of small issues. We just have to, and then once we get them to small issues, we have to think hard about the, how to solve that small problem the, the best. We, we, I mean, it's... It, to the extent that we have made any progress, at least in our work, it's always been that we, we have figured out, you know, if you wanted to get children to be able to read better, not to get an overall, you know, over, overall wonderful education, but just children who can't read, how, can, how to get them to be able to read. And those problems can be solved. But that, that's the way to get to a better education is first you solve reading, then you solve math, then you get them to read a bit more. And that's how education happens. It doesn't happen by saying, here, you, I'm handing you better education. It's always some sum of small problems that give you the answer to a big problem. And finally, Esther, the, the corollary of that is the idea that, that you talk about, the degree to which marginal change, small change, can really make a huge difference. Yeah, I think we often have the the order of magnitude wrong. We often think, well, if it's a big problem, we need a big solution. But in fact, take an example um, that may not be um, so nice for a, for um, a morning, which is the example of uh, of dewarming. Uh, many children in the world suffer from in intestinal worms, and uh, that makes them weak and that makes them listless. Michael Kramer and Ted Miguel did an experiment many years ago of trying to, of, to um, twice a year, give the kids a pill against, uh, to, to fight their worms. And they've just finished tracking them down many years later. The pills got about half a dollar per, per child and per year. They've just followed them uh, many years later and look at how much money they're making now. And these kids are making 20% more every year when they have been dewarmed for two years instead of one. So that's a huge difference. This is more than several years of good economic growth in, in Kenya. And this is telling us, this is one very clear example of you never know where the big impacts are going to come from. And you have to be prepared to be surprised. Esther Duflo, Abhijit Banerjee, I thank you both for spending time with us today. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.